with an illustration this morning, kind of in honor of my dad. My mom and dad are here, and my dad is a train enthusiast. He loves all things train, railroad, that sort of thing. So I want you to imagine with me that, that you've got an interest in trains and railroads. Maybe you like to sit there at the, at the cross where the trains come by and you love to count how many hopper cars, how many box cars, how many tanker cars. You're looking for the name CSX or Norfolk Southern or BNSF, and you're, you're interested in that kind of stuff. And maybe you would have an opportunity to go to a rail yard like in Atlanta, and you could look out there and see all those massive just different tracks coming and going, all these kind of places, or you're maybe at Grand Central Station, and you can see that uh, timetable up there and all the trains that are coming in and they're going, and, and you're just interested in that. And let's say that you were given special privilege to access the inner workings of that rail yard, to get up to that signal box or that control booth or to go into the control station there at Grand Central, and you could see that board that shows all the tracks coming and going for miles around. It's got little lights on it that are showing you where the different trains are and which direction they're going. And, and imagine you could do that. Well, English theologian J.I. Packer uses this as an interesting illustration for us today. He says, if you were able to gain that kind of privileged access to that control room, he said at once you'd be able to look at the whole situation through the eyes of those who control the trains. You'll see from the diagram why it was that this train had to be signaled to a halt and that one diverted from its normal running line and that one parked temporarily in a siding. The why and the wherefore of all these movements would become plain once you could see that overall position. And then he makes his point, which is relevant for us in today's passage, as we think about discerning true godly wisdom from the world's version of, of wisdom, he tells us that the common mistake that we make is that we think that God's wisdom is like being in that control booth for the train yard. In other words, he says, it's the idea that the gift of wisdom consists in a deepened insight into the providential meaning and purpose of all the events going on around us that what we want is an ability to see why God has done what He has done in a particular case and what He's going to do next. And we, want, we want to be in that control center. We want to be able to see that grand big picture to what He says, discern the real purpose of everything that happened to us so that it would be clear every moment how God was making all things work together for the good. We believe that all things work together for the good. But boy, how nice would it be to see why and how all that happens, right? For God to kind of pull back that curtain. But this isn't how God's wisdom works. God doesn't usually give us that kind of big picture view, does He? He doesn't show us the what-ifs and the would-haves, you know, that, well, if you'd just done X, Y, and Z, then this would have happened. Or if you'd gone here this day instead of there, this is what would have happened. We don't get to see that. So Packer instead offers us a different transportation analogy to show us how God's wisdom really works. It's more like learning to drive a car. Now, that, again, is relevant. My dad taught me how to drive. Now, those of you that have ridden with me, don't hold that against him. He's a much better teacher than I was a student. But Packer explains what matters in driving is the speed and appropriateness of your reactions to things and the soundness of your judgment as to what scope a situation gives you. You do not ask yourself why the road should narrow 
or screw itself into a dogleg wiggle. That's a great phrase, a dogleg wiggle. Just where it does. Nor why that van should be parked where it is. Nor why the driver in front of you should hug the crown of the road so lovingly. You simply try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself. The effect of divine wisdom is to enable you and me to do just that in the actual situations of everyday life. Wisdom for living is like being a good driver. We, we pay attention to our surroundings. We keep our eyes focused on the road in front of us as to what is immediately coming down the road. We have to be clear-sighted and realistic, taking things as they are, as they come to us. We have to look at life as it is, not the way we wish it would be. That's true wisdom. And so following this train of analogies, pardon that pun, James wants us to consider not just how well are we driving our lives, but who do we let in the driver's seat of our lives? Whose GPS are we following? Whose directions are we letting guide us and is it to the right destination? We're either going to be driven by true wisdom or false wisdom. Now, in, in, in the first part of chapter 3, James called us to evaluate the words of our mouth. In chapter 2, he told us to evaluate the work of our lives. Well, now, here at the end of chapter 3, he wants us to evaluate the source of both our works and our words. What kind of wisdom is sitting in the driver's seat of your heart and my heart? So let's look at James chapter 3, and I just want to first start looking at verses 13 and 14. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Now he asks the question, who among you is wise? Now the Greek word there for wise is sophos. Sophos, and it means skillful, trained, clever, experienced. That's what that word means. It's, it's the Greek word for someone, well, the Greek word for someone who loves wisdom and who is a skilled teacher is the word philosophos. And that's where we get the word philosophy, philosopher, someone who loves wisdom, someone who loves to teach wisdom. Now, this word sophos in the New Testament generally describes someone who has spiritual discernment, spiritual wisdom and discretion, someone who can not only see clearly what is right and wrong, but how to act accordingly, how to live their lives according to that. So I want us to pause for a moment and use these two verses to kind of introduce this idea of wisdom to us because James wants us to contemplate, and he asks right here in this question, who among you is wise in understanding? Who do you consider as wise? Who do you think of as being wise in your life? In our church, in our community. And then secondly, I want to think about who does society consider to be the, the source of wisdom, the experts? And who does our society lift up as being wise? Scientists, doctors, politicians? Well, that's a, that's a conundrum there for you, isn't it? So let's look at, first, the test for true wisdom. The test for true wisdom. 
James wants us to examine ourselves and those that we consider wise. Are we wise? Are those that we elect to uh, positions of leadership, are they wise or not? Truly, there are some that are, and there are some that are not. The people that we trust to be the experts, let's put them to the test. So he gives us a, a litmus test, three things. The first question is, is their conduct good? Is their conduct good? Now, the Greek word here for good means beautiful. It means worth something. It means useful and praiseworthy. It's sort of like what Paul tells us in Philippians 4.8 about to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is, whatever is commendable. If there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Paul basically defines for us there what that word good means. So a wise person, their conduct is going to be praiseworthy, excellent, commendable, lovely. That's how they live their lives. The second question, is their work humbly wise? Now, that's kind of a strange phraseology there. And, and what James says is a little strange as well. He says, uh, he says, by his good conduct, he would show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. His works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Now, that Greek word for gentleness also can mean humble, it can mean meek, uh, it, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, it, 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 which means it's a quality that grows and develops in us as we grow closer to Jesus. Jesus uses this in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, and, and you've heard it said before, meekness is not weakness. Meekness, gentleness here, this word means strength, under control. It's the same Greek word that would be used to describe a horse that was broken so that it could be ridden, so that it could be useful to someone. It's strength made useful. And so James uses this with this strange qualifier about wisdom, that it's humility in our work that comes from wisdom. So what's the connection here between being humble, gentle, meek, and, and working with wisdom? Well, just as humility or meekness means the right use of power, taking our strength and directing it towards something useful. So wisdom is the right use of knowledge. It's taking what we know. It's taking the strength and power of our mind and directing it towards something useful. So this idea of meekness and working in wisdom, they go hand in hand. A wise person will be meek and gentle and humble in all that they do. So if we're wise, if someone else is wise, their conduct is going to be good, their work is going to be done with this humble wisdom. But then the third question is kind of a negative test. Is their heart envious? Is their heart envious? He says in verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Now that word, therefore, uh, envy is the word zealous, the Greek word zealous, which is where we get our word, uh, being zealous for something. So those with false wisdom, what are they zealous for? They're zealous for their own glory. They're zealous for their own selfish ambition. Maybe that's profit, maybe that's power, maybe that's praise from other people. But these people have a false wisdom because... They're being selfish. Now, this false wisdom, uh, today we would call this kind of person a sophist. 
Okay, right? We talked about sophistry. A sophist, a sophist is someone whose argument seems clever, but the rationale, the logic behind it is fallacious. They sound good, they sound smart, they sound wise, but when you kind of dig under the surface, you realize they're not really saying anything. Again, we seem to have an awful lot of that in our world today. Sophistry is false wisdom. And these kinds of people, they're in it for themselves, for their own good, not the good of others, for their own glory, not the glory of God. And that's why the sophist is bitter. That's why his envy is bitter envy. Because selfish ambition, envy, fulfilling our own desires, these things never come through on their promise. They never satisfy. They leave you wanting. They leave you bitter. So just as faith is more than words, it has to include works, so wisdom is more than words. It has to include works. He says that the person who professes to be wise shows it, proves it by the way he lives his life, by his works. And those works are done good and, and they're done humbly. Now James moves from this litmus test. Now I want you to keep this, this test in mind. Now he's going to describe for us in detail what false wisdom is and what true wisdom is. So let's look at what he says about false wisdom in verse 15 and 16. Such wisdom, meaning this selfish ambition, this, this bitter envy, such wisdom, this false wisdom, does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. So let's talk about the source. He's going to explain to us here the source, the motivation, and the results of this false wisdom. And James Clerk tells us clearly that the source is not from heaven. He says, this is not from above. This, this has not come from heaven. And then he draws this sharp contrast between the wisdom that does come from heaven and this false wisdom. And he uses three terms that, if you notice, are in increasing order of descending. From that wisdom that's above, it just keeps getting worse and worse as he goes along. So first he says it's earthly. First, he says the source of this false wisdom is earthly, which means that it begins and ends with this physical world. It means it's completely manufactured in the minds of flawed human beings. It does not consider eternity. This wisdom thinks only about the here and the now, what you can see, what you can taste, what you can touch. It acts as if this life is all that there is. And how depressing is it to live this life as if this is as good as it gets? Wow. <laughs> Thank the Lord this is not as good as it gets. Amen? But this kind of wisdom, its hope is only for this world. This world is all it concerns itself with. We see this manifested today and the kind of philosophy says that he who dies with the most toys wins. That it's all about climbing that corporate ladder. It's all about accumulating wealth. It's all about having fun. It's this, this hedonism that's just all about fulfilling your pleasure and your desires. Or we see it with those whose psychological well-being is tied up with their career trajectory. It's tied up with their wealth and, and, and the stock market. How well is it doing? You know, we, we hear about these people that lose a job or they lose their money in an investment and they commit suicide. Their whole life and well-being is tied up in the stuff of this world. Or maybe it's in how well your team is doing uh, in, in the playoffs or, or this season. Uh, you know, I was praying hard last night for Georgia to win because I knew if they lost to Missouri, y'all would be sourpusses this morning. 
And I read an article last week from, uh, we actually saw a news article from one of the Knoxville news stations that they actually kind of did this little study and found out that churches said that when Tennessee won, their offerings increased the next day. So I expect to see that today, all right? I just... But we do. We allow things like that to override what the real priorities are, don't we? Or, or, or even in a more tragic sense, what happened in Indonesia the other day where their soccer team lost and they had a riot break out and 125 people died because of a game. But when this world is all you're living for, if your wisdom is earthly, that's the kind of stuff that happens. Earthly wisdom is also uh, bad about taking something that's good, like, like being a good steward of God's creation, being environmentally conscious. You know, we, we don't want to pollute. We want to take good care of the earth. But you take it, if this world is all there is, then you take that and you turn it into its own religion, where human flourishing and well-being comes second to protecting the planet. And we do things that aren't wise, but sound good and make us feel good, because if this world is all there is, then we do what we have to do for it. Paul says in Colossians 3.2 that we are to set our minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told us to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to us as well. It's about our focus. It's about our priorities. There's earthly wisdom. But then he goes a step deeper. It's also unspiritual wisdom. Now, that word unspiritual is from the Greek word psyche, where we get the word psyche, where we talk about psychology, right? It deals with our inner thoughts, our inner feelings, our inner life. It's all about us. In the New Testament, this word psyche can be used in a positive or in a negative way. So here, James is using it to contrast this false wisdom with true wisdom. So he's saying that this false wisdom is a wisdom that's natural, not supernatural. It's a wisdom that's sensual, not spiritual. It's a wisdom that seeks my own purposes, my own fleshly desires, my own appetites. How does it make me feel? Very interestingly, this word psyche was used in the ancient world the same way we use the word heart when we have expressions like follow your heart or it's from the heart. They had that same way of thinking about this in the first century. But we know what Jeremiah says about the heart in Jeremiah 17:9, it is more deceitful than anything else. It's incurable. Who can understand it? So when we tell people to follow your heart, go with your gut, follow your intuition, that is terrible advice. Because our heart is deceitful. Our gut can be wrong. And when we follow that, we are following a wisdom that is unshaped and unguided by the truth of God. Proverbs put it this way in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. Have you ever been there? Maybe not to the point of death, but you've made a bad decision before. You've practiced some unsound judgment. Ben, I'm glad you practiced sound judgment this morning with the, with the dodgeball there. That was, that was good. But we've all done that. We've all fallen victim to our own partial insight, our own misunderstandings, because we don't see the big picture, because we are biased, because our perspectives do get skewed. We have blind spots. Listen, to go back to the driving analogy, we need side-view mirrors, a rear-view mirror, we need those little lane departure warnings, and we need a GPS to keep us on the right path. Amen? We've got to have the wisdom of God. 
or else we drift. We go astray. We take a wrong turn and we end up someplace we don't want to be. Which is why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to trust in the Lord. Not in your heart, but in the Lord with all your heart. And do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know Him and He will make your paths straight. So this false wisdom, it comes both from earthly wisdom and spiritual wisdom, and then ultimately we get to the bottom of the barrel. It's demonic. It's demonic. False wisdom is earthly in its scope. It's unspiritual in its desires, but it's demonic in its roots. Ultimately, this false wisdom comes from the prince of lies himself, Satan. And when we live by the wisdom of this world, we're ultimately letting the devil in the driver's seat of our life. So James talks about the origin of this false wisdom, but then he talks about the motives of it. We see that here in verse 16. And the motives are envy and selfish ambition. Now, this is the second time he's talked about this, right? That's one of our litmus tests is this envy, this selfish ambition. Since false wisdom is earthbound, it's me-centered, it's demon-born, it's no wonder that its motives are selfishness and envy. That's to be expected because we're concerned with worldly desires if we're following this false wisdom. And again, we see this wisdom at work today when we are told to interpret everything as if it's all about you, right? We interpret everything through how it affects me. We make our decisions based on what's best for me. We post things on social media, which is all about self-promotion, right? It's all about making yourself look good. You, take the, you only post the perfect pictures. You make sure that your post at least makes you look as good as the person who posted something above you. It's all about ourselves, This is what drives the favoritism that James attacked back in chapter 2. It's the motive behind the the, the false and reckless teachers he warns against in the beginning of chapter 3. It's the reason there are bitter, bitter quarrels among believers and it's what keeps us from being mature and complete and lacking in nothing. There are no good outcomes to following the false wisdom of the world. And so he tells us, Next, what those results are. And he says it's disorder and every kind of evil practice. Disorder and evil practices. If we allow false wisdom to drive our lives, we're basically going to end up doing a Thelma and Louise right off a cliff. That's where it leads. This word disorder means unruly, confusing, chaotic, rebellious. Not to get political, but when you follow false wisdom that has an unbiblical view of human nature, of the source of evil and suffering in the world, a philosophy that wants to call what is good evil and evil good, you end up with slogans that may sound good in the moment to some people to defund the police, but the results are chaotic, disorder, riots, burning entire city blocks, looting and rape and murder. And then we wonder why there's this mass exodus of law enforcement in our country. And now they can't respond to 911 in a timely manner because nobody wants to work for these police departments. And we wonder why statistics of crime have just skyrocketed in every major American city. It all goes back. It's not not about the politics. It's about the worldview behind these decisions. It's about the wisdom that you're allowing to inform the discussion. 
It's chaos. It's disorder. And it's evil practices. Now, I want you to notice this evil practices mentioned here is the mirror opposite of the good deed mentioned in verse 13. Remember, good means beautiful, useful, worthy. The Greek word here for evil means base, cheap, and worthless. It's the exact opposite. It's like trading a priceless piece of art for a candy wrapper. It's like giving up the world's greatest, most juicy, tender piece of filet mignon for some day-old, greasy, mass-produced hamburger. Who would do that? That's often what we do. False wisdom fills us with selfishness, pride, and arrogance. And again, far too many people being driven by that wisdom today. And I want us to be careful that we don't just think of that being a a problem of the world around us. That can be a problem among Christians and churches too, amen? We need to ask ourselves, who are we letting behind the driver's seat in our life? Are we guilty of reaching over there and trying to grab the wheel from the passenger seat and take control? Listen, I'm thankful that I don't have to let the wisdom of this world drive my life. I'm thankful I don't have to rely on my limited, skewed perspective. I'm thankful that there is a driver who is willing and able to sit in the driver's seat of my life, and guess what? His record is clear. It's perfect. He has no speeding tickets, no wrecks, not even a scratch on the car, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants to sit in the driver's seat of your life and drive your life by true wisdom. And we see James describe that next. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Now, the source of this wisdom is simple. It's heaven. He says it's the wisdom from above. It is God's wisdom, period. He doesn't have to elaborate on that. And James has already told us where to get this wisdom. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Proverbs tells us that the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come understanding and knowledge, and that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that it's because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus and that it's Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. So we know where this wisdom comes from. It comes from God. It comes from Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. Now James departs here. He doesn't talk about the motives of this wisdom because if it comes from God, we know what the motives are. The motives are pure, the motives are for the glory of God and for, and for our good, for the furthering of His purposes. Rather, James describes the, the qualities of godly wisdom. And, and first and foremost, he says it's pure. It's pure wisdom. God is holy, which means everything that comes from God is holy or pure. There's no mixture of error. There's no mixture of falsehood in His wisdom. We can trust what God says, that it's true, that it's right, that, that it's going to be good for us. He's going to guide us down the right paths For His name's sake, it's pure wisdom. Secondly, He says it's peace-loving. True wisdom delights in peace. It promotes peace. And by peace, it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. This is not the false wisdom of peace at any price. In fact, worldly peace all too often involves compromising on principles and denying the truth. 
That is not the wisdom from God. Remember, Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Jesus' peace is different from what the world thinks of as peace. The peace of God means wholeness and well-being with, between us and God, between us and ourselves, and between us and other people. It's, it's relational. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. And apart from Christ, the lost world only catches glimpses of peace. It only hears whispers of peace. We can only know true peace through Jesus Christ. Third, he says it's considerate. Okay, Some translations might say gentle. This is that same Greek word that means meek. Meek, gentle, humble, considerate. It's hard to really encapsulate that word in an English word. Really, this word kind of summarizes what Jesus was saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile, loving and forgiving and praying for our enemies. See, true wisdom is humble. It's not self-seeking. It puts others before yourself, even to the point of foregoing the right of vengeance. It doesn't demand restitution it humbly forgives. It's considerate. It's gentle. It's humble. And number four, it's submissive. Some translations say compliant. Now, this is far more than just what we think of as being compliant or submissive and like you obey. It's more than just that. It means being open to listening to others. It means having a teachable spirit that's willing to reason with others and respects their opinion and even tries to learn from their perspective. And if you find out that you genuinely are in the wrong, you're willing to change what you think and believe. Now, listen, this is sorely missing in our culture today, isn't it? We don't know how to do this anymore, to have these kinds of dialogues and conversations. Instead, we just demonize and cancel somebody because they don't agree with us. They don't agree with the, the sophistry of the day. But true wisdom welcomes discourse. It encourages the sharing of ideas. It dares to have the debate. True wisdom isn't afraid of that. During the Civil War, President Lincoln, you know, in order to kind of please a certain part of his political base, was making some decisions during the war to move some different regiments around. And, and so he issued this order to kind of relocate some of these regiments. And the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, saw the order and he refused to follow it and said that Lincoln was a fool. And when the president heard this, here's what he said. If Stanton said, I'm a fool, then I must be. For he is nearly always right. I'll see for myself. And he went and sat down and he looked at what Stanton had to say and he came to the realization that if he followed this order, it would be a serious mistake and he rescinded the order. Boy, we need, we need more of that today, amen? That, that this, this teachable, open spirit, that is the mark of true wisdom. Fifth, James says it's full of mercy and good fruit. True wisdom isn't interested in being right just for the sake of being right. True wisdom is more about what is, what is elevating the other person, what is building up, not tearing down. It's, it's relational. It wants to lift others up and edify. And true wisdom produces a harvest of good fruit 
like glorifying God and making disciples and bearing the character qualities of Christ. It's full of mercy. It produces good fruit. Number six, it's impartial. It's unwavering. Now, James has already written at length about being impartial, about not showing, not playing favorites, not showing favoritism. True wisdom is equally true, equally just, equally right for all people in all times, in all circumstances. It doesn't play favorites. It treats everyone with respect. It doesn't sugarcoat the truth, but it speaks the truth in love to everyone. Regardless of your background, regardless of your situation, it's unwavering, it's impartial wisdom. And number seven, he says it's sincere, meaning it's genuine, without pretense, without hypocrisy. It doesn't put on a front. It doesn't wear a mask. It doesn't try to dress itself up. There are no hidden agendas, no angles, just loving truth meant to help, not to hurt, meant to lift up, not to tear down, meant to point people to Jesus, not to ourselves. This is the wisdom from above. This is true wisdom. Godly wisdom. And if we allow it to be in the driver's seat of our life, driving us down the road, we're going to end up in the right destination. And James tells us what that is in verse 18. Look at verse 18 again. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. The results of true wisdom is a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. Now that word righteousness here means both right standing with God and right living for God. Right standing with God and right living for God. I want you to notice the sequence here in this verse because this is powerful. Don't miss this connection. Righteous living is the fruit born of peace-loving people sowing seeds of peace that are fertilized by godly wisdom. I'll say that again. Righteous living is the harvest, the fruit, born of peace-loving people sowing seeds of peace that are being watered and fertilized and cultivated by God's wisdom. And I want you to notice that the result of false worldly wisdom is the exact opposite of the result of God's wisdom. Look back at the results of false wisdom. What, what, what are the results of false wisdom? Disorder and evil practices. What are the results here in verse 18 of God's wisdom? Peace, not disorder, peace and righteousness, not evil practices. Listen, the source the motive, the qualities, and the end results between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom could not be more different. And I think we can see that difference if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. It's out there in front of us. And the challenge before us today is simple. In a world of chaos and evil, where earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom is being pushed in every, nearly every institution in our society, we have a wonderful opportunity to shine bright the true wisdom of God. We have an opportunity. We can put God's wisdom up against the world's wisdom. And I believe if we do, the lost world will take notice. Now, it may be a slap in the face. It may be in a shock 
to the system for them. They might kick against it at first, but I think if we consistently and lovingly live and speak and work by the true wisdom of God, it will catch people's attentions and they'll be drawn to Jesus. What did Jesus say? If we lift Him up, He'll draw all people to Himself. And that means that we've got to put God's wisdom to work. That means we've got to embrace His wisdom and how we walk and talk and how we think and live. And again, when the world sees that, they will take notice and we can point them to the One who is the wisdom from God. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is God's way to forgiveness of sins and eternal glory for all who will trust in Him. Have you done that? Do you know the true source of wisdom? Have you turned from your sins? Have you turned from living according to the world's false wisdom and said, I want to trust in Jesus. I want to put my faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done for me. And it may seem counterintuitive to what the world says. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You just receive it. It's a gift. It's God's mercy and grace upon you. If you don't know that grace in your life today, I invite you to put your trust in Jesus. Let Him fill you with His Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth and He will direct your life down the right path. I invite you to come and do that this morning. What's going to keep you? What's going to delay you coming to trust in Jesus Christ? Come today. And for those of us that are Christians, I want us to ask, are we letting Jesus sit in the driver's seat of our life? Or have we bought into the lies of this world? Have we allowed ourselves to drift into oncoming traffic? Are we heading in the wrong direction? I pray that you will use this litmus test that James has given us to evaluate what kind of wisdom are you pursuing in your life. Have you bought into the empty philosophies of this world? Are you building your life on the solid rock of God's wisdom or the shifting sands of the world's philosophy that changes every other day? Believer, Whose wisdom are you living by? And can the people in your life see the difference? This altar is open if you need to come and pray and maybe rededicate your life to following God's wisdom. Maybe you want to come and you're not with this church family. Maybe you need to come and give your life to Jesus. Whatever God's Spirit is speaking to you, I invite you to come. If you would stand and pray with me. Father, Lord, Your wisdom is seen by this world as foolish. And you said that it was. And you said that it was a stumbling block. The people will trip and fall over because they don't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. But I pray your Spirit right now in this moment would open our eyes, would open our ears to your truth, that you would prick our hearts, Lord, that you would break through the hard shell we sometimes put there and make our hearts tender to your voice. If there's someone here today that needs to put their trust in Jesus, They need to come forward and make their relationship with you public and follow you in baptism. They need to come and unite with this church or pray at this altar and renew their commitment to living in the true wisdom that comes from above. God, I pray that we would step out right now in this moment in faith and trust and in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.